The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. We joked last week that no one ever claps when I'm done, but because you're all asleep. I was, uh, I was reminded, I was reminded this morning about an important, an important truth from, from God's word, and I found it in, or I rediscovered it, I guess, in Luke chapter 8. One day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him. A farmer went out to plant his seed. As he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on the footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Other seed fell among the rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. Still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. When he had said this, he called out, anyone with ears should listen and understand. And as I read that this morning, I was reminded of the truth that that so much of my interaction with God is dependent on where my heart is, where my mind is, and where my ears are. Because he is... He is constantly scattering seed. That's one of the things that we can learn from Luke chapter 8 is the farmer is scattering seed. And whether or not it is received is dependent on the soil. And you read a little later in Luke and Jesus explains that that's about the status of our heart. So I would, I would just encourage you this morning to, to be aware of what God is saying to you. To position yourself, to position your heart, to position your mind, and to have ears to hear what God has for you. And I say that about myself, too, because when he's speaking to me through the words that, that, that I've written and what I've heard from him. So let's, let's pray together this morning. God, we want to have open hearts and open minds and open ears. And, and more than that, we want to have... We want to have the desire to do something with what we hear. We want to have the desire to bear fruit. So this morning, as we, as we spend time in your word and we spend time as a body, I just ask, God, that each one of us would have open, open hearts, open minds, and open ears. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at two different texts today. So open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 and then Colossians chapter 2. And while you're, while you're turning there, just a quick reminder of what we've been talking about the last few months. If this is your first time here, we've been talking about the things that we want our body, we feel like our body needs to be focused on in 2019. We want to be focused on the lost, people who don't know who Jesus is. We want to, as the song said earlier, we want to love who God loves. 
We want to be focused on relationships, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. We want to be focused on Scripture, on what the Bible tells us. We want to be focused on our priorities as they relate to finances. We want to be focused on serving other people. We want to be focused on caring for one another. And today we're going to be talking about discipleship and the role played by the relationships that we have with one another. But what I'd like for you to do first, in, in your bulletin, there's, a, there's sermon notes in there. There's a little space. What I would like for you to do very, before we do anything else is, is there's a few lines, and I don't often do fill in the blank. But what I would like for you to do is I want you to first think about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I want you to write that down. So think about what does it mean to be a disciple, and then fill in the blank on on that question in your notes. And I'm going to give you about 10 seconds to do that. There's a theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann, and he, he has a, a, an idea of how the Psalms are written, and there's three different kinds. There's a, there's, there are Psalms of orientation, there are Psalms of disorientation, and then there are Psalms of reorientation. And I'm going to explain each one of those things more in a second, although that's, it's there in your notes. Each one of us right now, when you, when you wrote something down, or even if you didn't write it down and you just thought it, that's an orientation. Each one of you has an orientation of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower. That is called your orientation. And what I'd like for you to do, I'm going to read a few texts from the Bible, and I would like for you to consider your orientation in light of what Jesus says a disciple is. So you're going to look at your piece of paper. This is my orientation of what it means to be a disciple. And I want you to consider that when I read just a few verses. This is Matthew 16, 24. If any of you wants to be my disciple, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Luke 14, 26 and 27. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. This is Luke 14.33. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. This is John 8, 31. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. John 13, 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Here's the final one. This is John 15, verses 5 to 8. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch 
and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my word remains in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. As we hear these words of Jesus define for us what a disciple is, and we compare them to what we have written in our notes, I don't know about you, but when I walked through this little exercise earlier this week, I kind of had a sinking feeling in my stomach. Anyone else have a sinking feeling, a pit, kind of begin to build some tension about what we think a disciple is and what Jesus is calling us to? This is what Walter Bruggeman would call disorientation. We have our own understanding, and then we read the Scripture, and we see and we understand that, that what we think it means to be a follower of Jesus doesn't quite match up to what Jesus says a follower of Jesus is. So that tension that we feel is our own disorientation. And I think for some of us, if we, were, if we were honest about this, and for me it depends on the day, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus falls stunningly short of what Jesus calls me to live in my life. Amazingly short, colossally short. And over the years, what's, what's happened is, is, is we've assembled uh, our own understandings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and when we are confronted with truth, as, as Jesus has done in these verses and in many others, it can, be, it can be quite convicting. The weight of that reality bears down upon us. And these two spaces, these two things, orientation and and disorientation. This is really where Jesus does his best work in our own lives. I'm teaching a class at Summit on small groups, and one of the things that we talked about last week is how, is how amazing Jesus is at controlled disorientation in the lives of people. He's a master of controlled disorientation. Listen to some of the things he he says, and imagine how this would have disoriented the hearer. When he meets Peter and Andrew fishing, he tells them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Six times in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it was said. So he's giving them their orientation. But I tell you this. Here is a dis orientation. When a man, one of his disciples, no less, says, hey, I need to go bury my father before I follow you, Jesus says this, no, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their dead. This is disorientation. One of my favorite scenes of disorientation in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 13. Jesus hears that, that Pilate has murdered a number of Galileans in the temple as they worshipped. As they were offering sacrifices in the temple, Pilate has come in and, and killed them. This is Jesus' response. Do you think that they were worse sinners than anyone else? 
How unsympathetic, how unempathetic. But Jesus isn't done. See, Jesus is playing into their common orientation that bad things happen to bad people. A lot of us live in that space today, don't we? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. So surely those Galileans, they must have been really bad people, and that's why they were judged. But then Jesus brings the disorientation. He said, is that why they suffered? Because they were terrible people? Because they were worse than anyone else? No. But then he says this, and unless you repent of your sins, you're going to perish too. And then Jesus takes it to a completely different level of double down. He says this, and what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were worse sinners than any other person? No. But I tell you the truth, if you don't repent of your sin, the same thing is going to happen to you. Jesus is out to disorient our understandings of how the world works. And what I love about it is he, he just presents objective truth. He just tells them what reality looks like. He describes for them his kingdom. He doesn't beg and plead for people to believe it. He just gives them reality. He gives them truth. And this truth is what causes tension in our lives. When we hear what Jesus says, when we read these words and we feel tension, that is the disorientation that we live in. If you want to give, don't be like the hypocrites when you do. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Truth. Don't pray like the hypocrites standing on the street corners. You must become like a child. Love your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor is really the person that you want nothing to do with. This is the truth. These are the truths that Jesus just lays out for people to follow or not follow, to believe or not believe, challenging their own orientations. This is just how God's kingdom works. And that's what Jesus is out to do in every message is describe the function of God's kingdom, to describe the reality of God's kingdom. Essentially, Jesus is just saying, I'm just telling you what's going to happen. It's up to you to believe. And one of the things I've noticed is, as I've been reading through the Gospels, that, that Jesus' disorientation is frequently about the morality of the people around him. He is constantly challenging their sense of morality. And I don't know about you, I've been thinking about this all week long. Often, the biggest hindrance to Jesus accomplishing work in my life is my own sense of morality. Is my own sense of self-righteousness? Is my own sense of good and bad? And my own sense of right and wrong? And in my own life, I hold that up. I elevate that over what Jesus has for me. So when Jesus says things that disorient me, that challenge me, 
It's so easy for me to go back to my own sense of what right and wrong is. It's easy for me to go back to my own sense of self-righteousness, to my own sense of morality. What does that word morality mean? Here's how, here's how the dictionary.com defines morality. A number of different ways. First off, it defines it as a set standard, an ideal Principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong, good and bad. And this is where things start to get interesting when we think about morality. Because it starts off with a set standard, with there's one piece of morality, right? Morality is all the same. But then it says this, a system of values or conduct held by a society. Just a question, how can something be a set standard and then differ by society? Those two things are not the same. A code of behavior. And these these terms, this understanding of morality, begin to break down the deeper we go into these definitions. And these things, each one of these things, a set standard and ideal, these principles concerning what we think is right and what we think is wrong, they're completely subjective. They're completely self-focused. They're really based on outward appearances and outward behaviors as we think about what rules are to follow. But see, Christianity deals with something completely different. If we had a really big whiteboard, which we don't, sadly, but if we had a really big whiteboard, I would draw a a big continuum, right? That's a line with two arrows on the side. And over here, we would find morality. This would be outward, about appearance. And over here, on this side, we would write the word Christianity. And Christianity... is not dealing with morality. Christianity is after something else than outward appearance. It's really about what's going on inwardly. Christianity is about transformation. Morality and Christianity could not be further apart. Morality is about the exterior, what other people see. And Christianity is about inward transformation. And, and this, is, this is the biblical worldview. So what happens is when we, when we read through the Bible and we read through how Jesus talks to people and how he disorients them, he's confronting the immorality or the morality of man. And he's forcing the people that he interacts with to see that there is a deeper problem than just their behavior. And my hunch is, if we can get past our own self-righteousness, if we can get past our own sense of morality, as we look at the world, we would know that there is something far wrong, far greater wrong than just people's behavior. We would know that there is something that's causing this. And what Jesus can't do is he can't reorient us until we acknowledge what the problem is. Jesus can't transform us until we acknowledge what the problem is. 
So he is frequently out to say things and do things that cause disorientation. See, if I have a faulty understanding of what it means to be a disciple, until I'm confronted with the truth, I'm going to live in my fantasy world of what a Christian is. And I need to set that down, and many of you need to set down what you think Christianity is. If we were to go back to this continuum, you can always be a good moral person, but one of the things you'll find is there's always someone who is more moral than you. There is always someone who is more moral than you. There is always someone who is more moral than you. I want to challenge you that some of you as Christians, myself included, some of us have neighbors who are more moral than we are. Who keep the rules and outward appearance perfectly, much better than I could. And the good news in this is that Jesus isn't after morality. He's after something else. Jesus is constantly bringing disorientation to people so that they would be reoriented and be transformed. And that's what discipleship is all about. Controlled disorientation is best done in relationships with other people. I pondered this, especially when I was in, when I was in youth ministry, as I would, I would have conversations with students, and frequently we would talk about things that I would have parents come to me and say, I, do you really want to talk about that? I'm a little uncomfortable with you talking about this particular topic. Are you sure this is really what you want to dig into? And my answer was always yes. Because it's controlled. We're in a controlled environment. Students can ask questions, and we can respond to those questions. We've created a safe space for them to ask questions. Because otherwise, what happens is our, our students, our teens, they go, they go into the world where there is no controlled disorientation. It's just disorientation. And it's coming at them from all sides. And at least when the students were involved and engaged in our ministry, we could reorient them. We could teach them the truths about what Jesus says and does. And here's, if we were to think about everything Jesus said, if we were to think about what our own understanding of discipleship is, a disciple is someone who has been transformed by Jesus Christ. That's the answer to that's the answer to the question. What is a disciple? What is a Christian? It's someone who has been transformed by Jesus because discipleship is about transformation. It's about being different. And we have to submit our own orientation to Jesus's disorientation. We have to hear what he's telling us. We have to read what he's saying. We have to observe what he does, and we have to submit to that because Jesus is calling us to live in a different way than the way we want to live. Listen to, listen to Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God 
transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will for, what is God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, God is after transformation. God is after transformation. He's not just interested on this side of the imaginary continuum of morality. He's not just interested in the outward appearance, in the outward manifestation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He's not settling for morality. He doesn't want good moral people. He wants people who have been transformed, who are new people, who are new, who are different than who they were. I think there are lots of ways that we might copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Often, when I've I've read this text, I immediately default to, like, the world of sin, right? I don't want to copy those things. I want to be transformed. And I think that's that's true. I think that's accurate. But there's more than one way to copy the way of the world. And as I was thinking about morality and transformation, I think one of the ways that the church copies the ways of the world is to settle for a spiritualized morality. We settle for a spiritualized morality. Many of us are tempted to think that the Christian life is something that we do. We read our Bibles, we pray, we give, we serve, and we have convinced ourselves that that's what Christianity is. But in all honesty, that's really spiritualized morality. That's on that side of the spectrum. That's on that side of the continuum. And it's an alternate to the biblical worldview. And on the other side of that spectrum, we find Christian morality. So we have morality, things I do. Let's listen to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read all of Colossians 2. I want you to pay close attention to what Paul does here. I want you to know how how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I wanted to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is in Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I'm far away from you, my heart is with you, and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Now, some of those things sound an awful lot like things I have to do, right? The spiritualized morality, 
Listen to what Paul says next. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For Christ lives... For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, which was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. We're going to finish this in a second. I want you to see that Paul is describing transformation here. Paul is describing what transformed people look like. He's describing how transformed people are. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Paul is dismantling spiritual morality. Paul is saying that being a transformed person is not about what you do. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe body discipline, but they provide no help in conquering the person's evil desires. You see how Paul is disorienting his hearer? What's happened in the church is that people have set up spiritual morality as their ideal. They've set up life as a bunch of rules to follow, and this is what makes you a good Christian. These are the behaviors good Christians do. It's what you touch. It's what you handle. It's what you eat. It's what you drink. And that's how Paul defines Christian morality. And this is not a positive thing. Christianized morality is not a positive thing. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. They seem really wise. It seems so wise to not handle things, to not touch things, to not taste things. Why? Because it requires strong devotion. Isn't that morality? If I work hard enough, I can achieve it. Whatever sin you're facing in your life, whatever sin I'm facing in my life, I have convinced myself Sadly, 
in more than 20 years of a relationship with Jesus that if I just try harder, I will end this sin's control of my life. I just, I'm just not trying hard enough. Pious self-denial. Severe body discipline. If I just try hard enough, I'll be a better Christian. I can do it. And the thing is that this is the Christian morality that many of us settle for. Many of us settle for this. Many of us have convinced ourselves that this is what Christianity looks like. Try harder, do better, work more, work smarter, work faster, avoid this, don't do this. That is what we have, defi- we have defined the Christian life as. But did you notice what Paul says at the very end of chapter 2? These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe body discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And here's why. Because spiritual morality and Christian morality is not transformation. I can try hard all I want to to not sin. And unless and until I am a transformed person, it's not going to happen. The Christian life, this life that we are called to, is not about do. The Christian life that we are called to is about be. We are not called to do. We are called to be. Because transformation is about who each one of us really are. And who you are informs what you do, and it informs how you do it. So there is behavior. So once I'm a transformed person, Jesus talks about this. My reorientation into prayer. I'm not going to pray like someone who's not transformed. I'm not going to pray up front so everyone can see me. I'm going to pray differently. I'm not going to give in a way that everyone can see. I'm going to give out of a transformed heart. I'm not going to love people just because a whole bunch of people are watching me to see how I react. And there's a whole bunch of people here, so I need to go hurry up and open the door for someone. No, I'm going to love people because I have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's who I am, because it's who he has made me to be. The Christian life is about transformation. And far too many of us, myself included so much, so often settle for morality. There are so many times where I just live on this side and I, I, I care about what, people think of me and how is this going to look i'm a christian i'm a pastor what's it going to look like if i go to this place or someone sees me here like what what are people going to think of me and jesus is calling us to live transformed lives and people who have lived transformed lives do ridiculous things when paul called matthew to follow him a tax collector matthew invited him to a party that night at his house and the accusation was that jesus was hanging out with all of the notorious sinners translation prostitutes 
See, Jesus, Jesus wants us to live a transformed life. And he's going to model that and he's going to demonstrate that for us. And the biggest hindrance to our transformation is our sense of morality. Because we are bent on thinking that do matters more than be. And why is that? Because being is much harder. It's much harder for me to live a transformed life than to act like I live one. So I can walk into Cap and Co. with my Bible so everyone can see it, right? Because that's what Christians do. They take their Bible with them wherever they go. I can post nice, uplifting things on Facebook and convince everyone that I'm living the Christian life because that's what people want to see. I can post pictures of, of our family smiling together and have people look at that and think, oh, the Mulholland just must have this wonderful life. It is so easy for us to portray the transformation that Jesus is calling us to live and to fall way short of it. It's easier for me to check the box in my Bible reading plan at the back of my Bible, which I did this morning, it's much easier for me to check that box than for me to love my neighbor. It's easier for me to get my daily prayer in, because now I have it on my phone. I've shared that with you before, right, in my notes. I can wake up and I can do that first thing. It's much easier for me to do that than it is for me to forgive my wife. It's much easier for me to judge the sin of people who sin differently than I do than it is for me to confront my own selfishness and brokenness. Transformation requires me to submit to Jesus and give in to him what what I really want is control. Transformation requires me to think about the long game when morality tells me that I can settle for the short win, the quick victory. Transformation requires me to look inward And see that I'm the problem. Instead of shouting, that's not fair when things don't go my way. Transformation requires me to accept God's definition of a disciple. And morality allows me to define Christianity as someone who shows up to church. Transformation requires me to be in real relationships with people who have the relationship and the responsibility and the role to help me become more like Jesus. And this is why relationships matter. This is why relationships matter, because they help us move past morality. Relationships help us move past morality, whether it's spiritual morality or otherwise, and they force me into actual transformation. Because I'm called to be different. And I need people who are pouring into me to help me live the transformed life that Jesus desires for my life. And it's what he desires for you in your life. And that's why we talk about relationship a lot here at Westway Christian Church. And we, the church, are a primary way that that transformation takes place.
Not Sunday morning, 1015. But we, as a body of people who have been called out, we are a primary way that transformation happens. A disciple of Jesus is someone who has been transformed by him. So how can we know? How can we know if we've been transformed? Because this morality thing is pretty easy for me to figure out, right? I read my Bible more. I pray more. I go to small group every week. I go to church every Sunday. Like, man, those are so measurable. How do I know if I've been transformed? Well, there are more than 50 one another verses in the Bible. I'm not going to read all of them. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another Begin before beginning the Lord's Prayer. We cannot obey many of these one another's if the only time we see one another is on Sunday at 10.15. Can't do it. Can't obey it. Can't be true to what God is calling us to especially when we show up 30 seconds before the 10.15 and the millisecond we're done, you ghost out of here. We can't do these things. One of the things that I've told our staff over the last few weeks is coming up on two years being here, I feel like I've actually got about three sermons that are just on repeat. And one of those three sermons is relationships matter. And do you know why that is? Do you know why we talk about relationships a lot here at Westway Christian Church? Because relationships matter. Because relationships matter to my transformation and they matter to your transformation. I would say they're required for our transformation. My hope for you today is two things. That one, you will not settle for morality when you can have transformation. And number two, that you would see the role that relationship has in your own transformation and that you would desire to be a part of that, that you would hunger for that, to be transformed in relationship by other people. Let's pray. God, people who have been transformed are your followers. People who've given up everything they have are your followers. You call us to transformation and I pray, God, that we would not settle for morality. That we would not settle for external when we could have internal. That we would not settle for do and we would aspire to be because of what your son has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is doing in us now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.